1: Kakemai, Kakemai, and welcome. From RNZ National, here's our changing world. Viruses are constantly in the news. Zika virus, Ebola, measles, the list goes on. These viruses are a burden on human health, but what many of us don't realise is that there are many other viruses out there, including some that affect plants, and can be costly in terms of lost crop production. Paul Guy from the Botany Department at Otago University is a virus hunter, and he's been called in to help diagnose possible virus infections in some rare native plants. Alison joins Paul and Department of Conservation
2: Ranger Graham Lowe at the tip of the Otago Peninsula to find out more. Lepidium seemed to catch everything. We always knew about the cabbage white butterflies. It's in the cabbage family, and there goes one right now.
1: OK, so let's wind back. Lepidium, what are we looking for?
2: Lepidium, it's a native cress. It's got this stupid English name, Cook Scurvy Grass. Now why is that a stupid name? It's not a grass. (laughs) (laughs) And it didn't give Cook Scurvy. (laughs) Did it
1: stop him getting scurvy?
2: He learned from the Dutch that if you ate plants from the cabbage family, you wouldn't get scurvy if you gave it to your crew. And Banks told him this belongs to the cabbage family, so they collected a dinghy load of it somewhere. (laughs) And it worked. And it worked, Now we don't have
1: dinghy loads of it around here, but we do have by... All accounts quite a good population. So these are the plants that Paul is standing
2: next to. There's one at his feet. Can yep. you describe it for me? Well, what's really prominent at the moment is little rosettes of dusty green leaves. They've got a little bit of teeth on them. The way that I sometimes have to help identify them is something I learnt from Hugh Wilson. Is you taste it, and it tastes like cabbage. It tastes like cress. It tastes like mustard. Like peppery cress. Peppery cress. Yeah. Yes. It looks
1: a bit like the sweet alyssum that I grow in my garden at home to attract bees. Yeah, it's
3: it's in the same family, allisons, uh, another brassica, masquerading as a sort of decorative plant.
2: What kind of lipidium is it? This is lapidium crassum, only grows in Otago, and one of the extraordinary things is it survived on the mainland. In fact, it's doing better on the mainland at several colonies than the two island colonies that we have.
1: Now, this is a pretty unique spot for it here, so why is it doing so well here?
2: The red-billed gulls have set up a large colony here. It's probably the second largest colony of red-billed gulls in New Zealand now, after the decline in the Kaikoura colony, which is still the biggest. And they've progressively been moving around the headland, and they just completely denuded the place, and as you can see, it's all white with guano. That's how intense the gull nesting was here. There were several thousand nests right here this last summer and the summer before. It's so good that the mallow, the exotic mallow grows up, and it means that they can't nest in places up the hill there where they were a few years ago. But it kills every other plant. as you can see, you're standing on dead plants all around you here, this festuca um, arundinacea. Everything dies back, but the lipidium's very good at coping with high salinities, high chemical content, and it's good at coping with a lot of trampling and a lot of being used for nest material. So even though it
3: looks quite soft. It is very, very hardy. It's sort of one of the plant kingdom's thrill-seekers, I think, where Graham's shown me. It doesn't like competition, but if things are really tough, it really likes to get going. Show me one site where green water crashes across it from the, the open ocean, but lipidium hangs on where other things can't.
1: Are they perennials? Is this plant that we're looking at here, is that going to stick around for a few
2: years?
3: Yeah, they last for quite a few years. graham has got some good... Uh, data from the Aramoana Mole, where he's followed Mm. them for for many years.
2: Yeah, so the plants will be over 10 years old, but they do die quite easily, and that's where Paul comes in and
3: helping me with the various things that's causing them to die.
2: So they're tough but sensitive, we think.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, They're they're infected by three different viruses that have come in since sort of the European invasion of of New Zealand, and um, yeah, we're just trying to see how important they are, some... Interesting clues. The, the ones on Aramoana don't seem to get naturally infected, which is a good thing, but I've tested some seedlings that Graham provided back in the glasshouse for one of these three viruses, and it kills them stone dead in, in three months, so it's potentially quite serious.
1: Tell me a bit more about these viruses.
3: They probably came in with our introduced brassicas, one called cauliflower mosaic, another one called turnip mosaic, another one called turnip yellows which gives you a clue where they originally came from Uh, but they also came with uh, aphid vectors, the aphids act like flying hypodermic syringes and inject them into all sorts of brassicas uh, and unfortunately including these uh, rarities so we're looking at ways of maybe mitigating the risk
1: So when did you begin to suspect that viruses might be a problem in your
2: lipidiums Graham? When uh, Gary Hooliston and Peter Heenan came down and Peter Heenan ran around one of my colleagues saying, this one's sick, pulled it out, that one's sick, pulled it out and he got rid of half the population of the really rare Lepidium juvencum at Long Beach Cave. I was appalled, but he said, no, if you leave these alive, the um, aphids will get around. And then I met Paul and he told me a bit more about this stuff, but what a headache for a person that's used to killing big things.
3: Yeah, well, what we hope we might be able to do is is see if there's a pattern in different populations. And the sort of first suspicion is that maybe some of the brassica weeds are acting as reservoirs and it's sort of spilling across into the lipidiums. Uh, So we've made a note of what species are around each population of lipidium to see if there's a a sort of correlation with, with which ones are infected and which ones aren't. So be interested to see today if these ones are infected or not. They certainly look... Some of them look unhealthy, uh, but some of the prime suspects are not here. But just over there, one that Graham found last visit was this forage brassica, which would be a prime suspect as a, a reservoir.
2: For both aphids and for virus. Yeah,
3: definitely.
1: So to determine whether these have got a virus, is that something you need to take back to the lab and do?
3: Yeah, I've got some uh, quick tests I can do in the, in the lab. Same sort of technology we use for medical tests. We've got... Similar tests for plant viruses, and also some work in the glasshouse. house and grind them up and see if there's other viruses there that might transmit to, to test plants. But I'm sort of half-hoping, if we just do basically good uh, plant husbandry there, if we get rid of some of these reservoir weeds, we might be able to uh, reduce the the problem. The other problem, of course, is that you know back from where these live, there's lots of paddocks of forage brassicas and other weeds that are potentially uh, part of the problem too. So it may not be as simple as, as we think, but we've got to start somewhere.
2: And a whole city full of gardeners. Yeah. I'm really pleased that Landcare and the university have taken an interest in this because all the la- native lipidiums are in the threatened categories. There's none of them that are secure, one of them that's ex- extinct. And we've got some really interesting lipidiums, both here on the coast and also the ones inland, the lipidium cyst embryoides.
1: Now tell me a bit more about viruses and our native plants, or our introduced plants for that matter.
3: Well, unfortunately there's more and more every year. The biosecurity tries to keep them out, but uh, unfortunately people sort of help introduce them. Um, yeah, and, and part of the, as well as being problems in, in crops and ornamental species, there are also been invading our native flora. Uh, we've done some work over the years on various species. Native grasses, um, one of the larger families in our native flora, being ex- unfortunately inter- um, invaded by <coughs> viruses that came in, probably with introduced grasses and cereals, uh, again transmitted by aphids. It seems to be a very efficient way of introducing uh, new diseases into to native populations. So, yeah, quite a a problem for agriculture, uh, but also less studied. One of the things we're trying to concentrate on and a few other small groups around the country is what are their effects likely to be and how much have they invaded our our native species. And Lepidium, I guess, is a a good case in point.
1: Do you know what all the viruses are that we have or do you keep finding new ones?
3: Uh, In New Zealand, we keep finding new ones. Uh, In the cresses, we've found three so far, but... um, Interesting thing that we did last summer, Graham collected some cresses and I looked at the various insects that were associated and we found um, that you know, that dreadful flowery aphid that you find on your cabbages and cauliflowers, that was one of the ones that you found on some cresses just over the hill from here. But I also found, when I tapped them out and looked under the microscope, some thrips, and thrips are prime suspect. There's a whole suite of viruses that thrips transmit, so... We need to sort of widen the, the net, I think, and look for some of these thrip-transmitted viruses as well.
1: So it's interesting talking about viruses and plants because there's so much on the news at the moment with Zika virus and mosquitoes. But this whole thing of viruses and plants is yeah, just well, that under was the radar. The news
3: to me. I didn't know that plants could get viruses. Yeah, <laughs> well, they've they got their own suite. There's about a thousand well-characterised plant viruses to date, and many more to come. I suspect with newer molecular techniques we're finding more and more and it's getting easier to to detect them on mass but yeah they're just part of life too i mean everyone they have a very negative connotation and certainly getting into lipidium is not a good thing but uh, they're also part of the biome as well it's just a harder sell to convince people that uh, viruses are a natural part of life
2: are they like flu and rapidly
3: evolving they seem to have evolved with the plant hosts and they've probably been around for tens of millions if not more years and they're diversifying with with their hosts rather than jumping to new hosts all the time And they seem to respect our idea of plant taxonomy that a bit like these Lepidium viruses the ones that are prime suspects are viruses that affect other brassicas in the same family they don't really jump around I guess the news and media like to sensationalize the few that are changing rapidly because it scares people and and sells copy, I guess, for radio and TV. But most of them are just sort of chugging along most of the time, I suspect.
2: Talking about public perception and media, we were talking about genetic engineering on the way out here and you were bemoaning no genetic engineering and I was saying it's great that we have
3: no genetic engineering. (laughs) You tried to put me out of the car halfway there. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's potentially a very useful tool. It's been in use now for over 20 years. It's not, you know, a silver bullet but particularly in my area, there are many species that don't have good resistance genes, natural resistance genes to uh, plant viruses, but we can make resistance genes in the lab, and people have, and deployed them successfully and, and safely. It saved the uh, pawpaw or papaya industry in, in Hawaii. There's a, a virus called uh, papaya ring spot virus, which wiped out the industry and uh, fortunately, a plant virologist grew up on a papaya farm and he said, I, I know how I can help. And they created this transgene, a sort of dud copy of the virus gene that they inserted into poor or papaya, and it makes them resistant. And It's held up for over 20 years now and it's sold even in farmers' markets in Hawaii and other parts of the world didn't like the idea for a long time, but even Japan and Europe now are importing and eating these uh, transgenic papayas. And the good thing is that doing that, it's also reduced the need for insecticides because they had to spray constantly to kill the aphids that were was, was spreading the virus. So they've reduced the amount of insecticide they've needed. Uh, so it's helped in that regard too.
1: That was Paul Guy from the Botany Department at the University of Otago. And you also heard from Doc Ranger Graham Lowe. Thanks for listening to this hour changing world podcast. You can stay in touch with us on Twitter at rnz underscore science. Matewa.
0: Botox Cosmetic, botulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.